You are Locked On Bills, your daily Buffalo Bills podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, Bills Mafia? It's Joe Marino from the Draft Network, and I'm your host of Locked On Bills. Today's episode is brought to you by Bilt Bar. Go to BiltBar.com and use promo code LOCKEDON, and you'll get 20% off your next order. Happy Friday to you. As promised, we have Bruce Nolan from the Bruce Exclusive Podcast on the Buffalo Rumblings podcast feed here to help us finish this conversation about the Buffalo Bills defense, just like we work through all the offensive positions with the performance review. And then we kind of cap that off with the discussion with Nate Geary. We're doing the same today with Bruce Nolan. And as I've worked through these position groups, as you guys have listened to those podcasts, you know that I've uncovered a lot of challenging questions, some tough questions. And so I love to add another perspective when I can on this podcast. And I think this is a good opportunity for me to send these Bruce's way and uh, really just enhance the conversation and tie a ribbon on everything. So Bruce, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Joe. I, I got to be honest though. This isn't what I signed up for. You said softballs, just complete softballs, no tough questions. We were just going to talk wonderful things with sunshine, butterflies, and rainbows. And you know, I'm feeling very duped. You know, I just, I, I just want nothing but sunshine, butterflies, and rainbows. I, I think you, I must've been hacked uh, when you got that message because this Bill's defense, brother, it's, uh, it ain't what it was. <laughs> so we need to figure out why and, and what, uh, what can be different for it to be back, right? And, and be at a championship caliber. So we'll kind of work through the position groups. And I, I feel like, like what's going to be really different about this conversation compared to the one that I had with Nate is that, it's a lot less general, and I feel like it's a lot more specific. So we're going to kind of break this into each position group, defensive ends, defensive tackles, linebackers, corners, safeties, and I have questions within that. So, Bruce, let's start with defensive ends. And I guess my first question for you is, is very straightforward. Like, how satisfied were you with the Bills' defensive ends in 2020? So the first thing we have to do is quantify satisfaction because obviously that's what we have to do. So on a scale from 0 to 10 – with zero being, I could possibly be more dissatisfied. And 10 being, I could not possibly be more satisfied. I would say I was a six this year for the Bills defensive ends. There were specific aspects of the Bills defensive end room that performed basically like I expected them to. Jerry Hughes performed exactly as I expected him to. A.J. Epinesa as a second round rookie who drastically changed his body type during the course of the offseason, I think performed pretty much the way I expected him to. Then there were other aspects of the defensive end room that did not perform the way that I expected it to. Mario Addison, chief among them. Mario Addison coming in was somebody of kind of a, a watch-setting defensive end. He was someone who you could count on from a consistency standpoint to be able to generate the type of pressure that you were kind of hoping would be a step up from Shaq Lawson. Because... When you let Shaq Lawson, Lawson walk out the door and you bring in Mario Addison, who's a much more accomplished pass rusher, you expect to get more pressures and more sacks than you got from Shaq Lawson. And I don't think you really got a better pass rush, but you also took a step back in run defense. 
So I don't think Mario Addison was quite what we wanted him to be. So you have aspects of the defensive end room that performed as I expected them to. And then you have aspects of the defensive end room that did not perform as I expected them to. Obviously, Trent Murphy, in retrospect, in hindsight, it would have behooved the Bills to recoup that $8 million. But without them knowing and having a full offseason of AJ Epinesa, they wanted to make sure they hedged their bets by keeping a known quantity in their defensive end room. And I understand that. But in retrospect, probably not the wisest decision. Daryl Johnson did not take a step forward as far as the toolsy late round pick, because that's the type of player you pick late in the draft. You pick someone with tools who you can develop and didn't take the next step as a defensive end, was perfectly okay, and was still a four-phase special teams player, which has value. But overall, when it comes to the defensive ends, I'd say six. Six out of ten. Ten being could not possibly be more satisfied, and zero being could not possibly be more dissatisfied. So the overview has been set. Let's get specific. You mentioned Jerry Hughes met your expectations, and I would say I would go as far as to say that Jerry Hughes was the best defensive lineman on the team this past year, which begs the question as he's now like into his 30s, how much do you think is left in the tank for Jerry Hughes in terms of at least giving this level of performance for how long? No, I think I would have said something different before I saw the drop off of Mario Addison, but Jerry Hughes is still winning the way that Jerry Hughes won two years ago. And that's the thing that's interesting about Jerry Hughes. You know, coming out of college at TCU, he was a bendy, explosive edge player. And they never quite lived up to that with Indianapolis, came over here to the Buffalo Bills. And as he's gotten older, he's become much more savvy as a rusher with hand usage, with leverage, with different types of moves. And those are types of things that age well as a pass rusher. And it's interesting, you know, we think of Mario Addison as like this heavy-handed compression rusher. But, you know, coming out of college, this is a 6'2", 245-pound, high-athlete kind of raw player in Mario Addison. And then he kind of developed into a more versatile, a more hand-usage kind of guy as he got older. And so that's the type of thing that does age well if you can age into a more savvy veteran. It's a little bit like being able to use your route running to get open as a wide receiver instead of just using your speed. So I do think that there's a possibility that Jerry Hughes has more time still left in him at reasonable level play. The other thing you're noticing is that there really hasn't been a drop-off from Jerry Hughes. Jerry Hughes has been consistent across the last couple of years as long as he's been healthy. So when I look at Jerry Hughes, I'm not really ready to hang it up. Now, I don't think that we should count on him being good for another three years and keep signing him to extensions all day long. But I think a couple more years of good play is completely reasonable for Jerry Hughes. So you mentioned Mario Addison, and uh, I think we are collectively disappointed in what the Bills got out of Mario Addison. And you look at some of the opportunity that exists for Brandon Bean to create some cap space, and, and one of those is letting Mario da- Mario Addison go uh, maybe at a minimum or restructure. So as you've now experienced Mario Addison for 16 games and uh, more with the playoffs, and I know that you did a lot of work on him going into this season, would Mario Addison be part of your plans for 2021 if you were calling the shots? He would be part of my plans for 2021 only because of the value proposition. You know, $4 million in dead cap for $6.1 million in savings 
If I can restructure him, great. But having a $4 million dead cap hit and freeing up $6.1 million in savings, that's not good enough for me to create a hole. And one of the things I think is interesting about Mario Addison is when you talk about cutting players to free up space, one of the things that's really interesting about that whole dynamic, because it's something the Bills really haven't been in that space for a couple of years because they haven't had good players worth paying to the point where they could cut someone to free up space. And now that you're in that position as a fan base, you think to yourself, okay, it's not just about what I save. It's also about the player I'm going to have to replace that player with and how much that player is going to cost. So for example, if I can cut Mario Addison, okay, great. Now I have Jerry Hughes and AJ Epinesa are my ends. That's basically it for the room. Okay, so now I probably need two if you want to keep rotating. So now, okay, I need two. Trent Murphy's off the roster. Can I get a reasonable defensive end who's going to give me better production than Mario Addison for $6 million? Probably not. So for me, Mario Addison ends up staying on the roster unless I can get a restructure done, in which case I can obviously lower that cap in, just because of the value proposition, not because I think he's a great player at this stage. And I do think that there's probably not a ton of hope when you look at Mario Addison. There doesn't seem to be an obvious excuse as to why he didn't play well this year overall, but would play really well next year. Like there's not an obvious answer, like an injury or you know, first time working in a new system. Good, goodness gracious, it's Sean McDermott and Eric Washington. Mario Addison is used to those people. So there isn't a good go-to excuse like there is for other players on the defensive line as to why you didn't get production out of Mario Addison. And because of that, there's not really a lot of hope moving forward that he's suddenly going to become a much better player. However, the value just isn't there for me personally to be able to cut him, free up $6.1 million, get $4 million in dead cap, and also create a hole that I now need to replace with a reasonable or better defensive end for the money that I saved. Yeah, when when Sean McDermott was talking about how the foundation has been laid for expectations and technique for the Bills defensive line under Eric Washington, the defensive line coach in his first year with the team, that was a pretty hollow message to me as it relates to Mario Addison, who has been with this, this group I don't know for for years now, right? So that that didn't that didn't apply to him. Maybe to some of the other guys. I think Bruce, if this group is going to get better in 2021, it's probably going to be because AJ Epinesa becomes a more meaningful part of this rotation. So when you think about the player you watched at Iowa, when you think about what we saw from AJ Epinesa as a rookie, what type of ceiling do you think he has? It's really weird because you know coming out the common common body type composition was someone like Trey Flowers, right? a heavy-handed, long, bull rush, you know, 10-inch hands, 34-inch arms, that kind of player who ran high four nines, low fives, didn't have a great speed, a compression power rusher. And then all of a sudden, A.J. Epinesa loses a bunch of weight. And we look at him on the field and go, that doesn't look like the Iowa A.J. Epinesa. It's a, he's a little bit burstier, he's a little bit bendier, but probably lost a little bit of muscle mass. They openly admitted that he lost a little bit too much weight. And so you're like, okay, what kind of comp do I have for him now? Because 
If he is 25 pounds lighter or 20 pounds lighter, he's probably running a little faster. So you go looking for a new comp because you say, okay, what if, what if he stays in the low 270s or high 260s instead of playing at 280 and then dropping all the way down to the high 250s or low 260s? What does that look like now as far as someone who is a reasonable comp? And my mind immediately went to Ryan Kerrigan, who's 6'4", 270, right? He's someone who never had great speed. His 10-yard split was the combine was not good, but he had great length, 34-inch arms, 9-inch hands. And he was a little bit, little bit more spiffy, a little bit more feisty than A.J. Appanessa as far as getting between the cones. But now that A.J. Appanessa isn't 480 plus, maybe he does run 485 instead of 5. You know what I mean? And so I had to kind of find a new comp for A.J. Appanessa, and I had some trouble with it. And I think that, you know, Ryan Kerrigan someone who started off a little bit slower in his career and developed into kind of a really good pass rusher who's very, very under underappreciated across the league because he's using the length and he's using the hand size. He's using the power and he's a good, good rusher. And I think that if the bills ended up getting that type of production from AJ, but it's absolute home run grand slam. And I think that's the absolute pinnacle ceiling that you can look at for AJ, and I would not have picked even close to being that type of person a year ago today. It sounds like you're higher on what Epinesa can become after seeing the body transformation and the, the player that he kind of developed into later in the season. Am I interpreting you correctly by saying yeah, that? Yeah, I, I didn't think that that was – I didn't think that would ever cross my mouth. I didn't think that A.J. Epinesa was ever going to be someone who I could see being a 10-second-a-year guy in the NFL. I really didn't. That was not my – overarching theory on him when they drafted him when the bills drafted him in the second round last year i went okay yeah that's fine i get it i understand he fits the mold he's gonna be a compression rusher ideally you'd like to see him you know be a a better version of shaq lawson right that would be what and then all of a sudden the body type changes and he starts to look a little bit spiffer as far as the uh you know the movement ability on tape and you start to see some of those some of those traits start to come out. You start to see the hand usage. You start to see the long arm. You start to see him able to use those tools at a lighter weight with a little bit more agility and speed. You think, okay, maybe there is something here. And maybe he can be uh, not necessarily a superstar pass rusher because the vast majority of all 10 sack a year guys in the NFL are elite athletes. And A.J. Epinesa, even after the weight loss, is not an elite athlete relative to his defensive ends. But there are some people in the league who can end up being good, not amazing superstar, but good without crazy athleticism. And I think that he probably recouped some of that athleticism by dropping some of the weight. Now, if he can manage to get some lean muscle mass on him and play in the 265 range, with a little more definition after a year of strength training, which we all know a full year of strength training in the NFL Mm -hmm. is a really significant boon to rookies going into their second year. If that can happen, maybe he can be a good player. And when I say good player, I mean, start over Mario Addison. I don't mean he's going to be, you know, a 14 sack a year guy, 
But I mean, start over Mario Addison and be the tied for the best or the second best pass rushing option from the edge on this team. Bruce, as we shift to the interior defensive line, and as I think about the comments that I made on the podcast about this position group and you know, even applying some of that to, to linebacker with Tremaine Edmonds, just kind of being honest about Ed Oliver and him being a top 10 pick and what we've seen to this point and the ceiling that I at least think he has, I, I, I kind of need to see that happen this year. And I, and I kind of liken Tremaine Edmonds and Ed Oliver to, all right, if they were performing like somewhere near, and, and maybe this is aggressive, but if they were performing to the level of Trey White at cornerback, which I think that they're capable of physically, at linebacker and defensive tackle, then this Bills defense is we have a, we're having a different conversation right now. But I don't think that Ed Oliver or Tremaine Edmonds has got to that point yet. So let's focus in just on Ed Oliver right now. So how would you assess the play of Ed Oliver to this point? What are your expectations for 2021? And do you think that I am towing the line appropriately between recognizing some of the challenges that Ed Oliver has had? understanding the talent level that he does have, but also simultaneously having a little bit of disappointment that he hasn't become a more consistently impactful player. Absolutely. I think it's absolutely fair. I think that the Ed Oliver, Aaron, Aaron Donald things was always ridiculous. It was always ridiculous. And I think that because they were crazy athletes who were a little bit shorter, people had a tendency to lump that together. And it's just unbelievably unfair. And the same thing happened with, Tremaine Edmonds and oh well, the Bills have found their Luke Keekley. Luke Keekley's a Hall of Fame player. Aaron Donald's one of the greatest defensive players to ever play, ever play the game. He was ridiculous from the beginning. However, it's reasonable to say that Ed Oliver hasn't met expectations yet. The thing that gives me a little bit of solace about Ed Oliver is that there are moments on film where you see the thing drawn up as designed. And what I mean by that is you see him rushing the passer in a penetration style role from three tech. And you think to yourself, okay, he can do the thing that I thought he was going to do when the bills drafted him. But this year was so ineffective at the one tech position for the bills because Starla Tule opted out and Harrison Phillips was ineffective for the vast majority of the year. So they end up platooning Quentin Jefferson and Ed Oliver at one tech Vernon Butler was again, ineffective. So you have all these times where he's being asked to do the things that are easier at three tech from a different position. It's a little bit like, in, I would liken it to asking a slot receiver to play outside. Yes, I understand the routes are similar, right? But the position you're doing them from changes everything. And so for Ed Oliver, when he's asked to take on a double team, right? And anchor down from the one position, one tech position, it's not the same as being asked to play the run effectively from the three-tech position. And when you ask someone to rush the passer from the one-tech position, it's not the same as rushing from a three-tech position. And your ability to have stunts and games are completely different from the one-tech position than they are from the three-tech position. And occasionally, you see moments where everything lines up correctly. And you have a one-tech who commands a double team, and Ed Oliver is able to make a play and be an annoyance to the offensive line from the three tech position. You think to yourself, there it is. That's it. That's the thing. That's what we were all waiting for. That's what we were hoping for. But the situation around him was so imperfect so often that you think to yourself, 
this isn't really statistically significant data in favor of Al Oliver either. So it's not an excuse. You don't just write it off and say, well, Ed Oliver, <laughs> this year doesn't even matter. It's just a lost year. No, no, it's, it's not a lost year because there's still moments like that that happen positively. But that also means that there was tons of snaps when Oliver needed everything to be great around him in order to be an impactful player. And if you're a top 10 pick in the NFL, you shouldn't really need everything to be perfect around you to be able to make an impact. And so I do think it's valuable for Oliver to have played these snaps at one tech and seen what it is that it takes to be an impactful player in this league. But I agree with your assessment that Ed Oliver and Tremaine Edmonds are not there and they need to be there. They need to show up. And I'm not asking for Aaron Donald and Luke Keekley. That would be ridiculous. But I am asking that when the Bills get Starla to lay back and they have reasonable play from a one tech, that Ed Oliver do the things that at least we get Geno Atkins, who is a good player for the Cincinnati Bengals for a good bit, because that's the player that I comped at Oliver to was Geno Atkins. So I'm not asking for Aaron Donald. And it would be ridiculous to ask for one of the greatest defensive players in NFL history. But I don't think it's unreasonable to ask for impact from your first round pick in year three. Now, I'm not here for the Ed Oliver is a bust thing because statistically significant sample size is a real thing. And I'm also not here for Tremaine Evans is bad at football. Again, statistically significant sample size. But they're both going into years where when you have physical tools like Dawson Knox and Tremaine Edmonds and Josh Allen and Ed Oliver, you're willing to wait a little bit longer. But at some point, they got to show up. I think that's extremely fair. Now, we've, or you mentioned several times there, one technique and playing out of position. And some of that was, or not some of it, a lot of that was because Starla Tule opted out of the season. And presumably he's back for 2021. So let's operate under that being true. Can you like, can you outline for us what the expectations for Star Latoule should be with him coming back into the defense and how it changes things and how it affects things? And, and is there is there maybe too much hope that we are putting into his return as being, okay, now that he's back, the rotation is going to be figured out, the groupings are going to be figured out, and the Bills will be better against the run. And because of that, Star Latoule, or, uh, you know, Star's back in the lineup, Tremaine Edmonds can, can flow to the football more cleanly. Like, is it how big of a deal is it that he's back? And like, what should our expectation level be for that? I think there's two parts of this. The first is how good is Star, and the second part is how bad were the Bills at one technique. And I think it's important to get both of these pieces right because on one hand, Star Latoule is a reasonable to above average one technique in the NFL. That's where he was. That's where he's always been. He is a reasonable to above average one technique. This isn't Vita Vea out here. This is a reasonable to above average one technique. And that's what you should expect from him. I don't expect that Star Latoule has spent the year off learning how to be an impact dynamic athlete in a way that he never was at any point in his career up until now. I don't think that's probably the case. However, my opinion of the Bills play at one technique this year is so low. I would argue it may have been the spot on the entire team that had the lowest level of performance overall over the course of the entire year. It was really bad. And when you think, okay, how far of a step up is reasonable from really bad? And that swing is fairly strong, in my opinion. Now, 
Harrison Phillips had some moments at the end of the year that were better, but Harrison Phillips has enough statistically significant data at this point in his career where I don't think you look toward Harrison Phillips's untapped potential at the one technique position. I don't think there's a possibility that he becomes a superstar. He's had flashes of good play. He had a flash at the end of this year of good play. He had a flash in the beginning of 2019, most notably against the Bengals, until he got hurt. But that's about it. And because of that, you're not going to get reasonable to above average play from Harrison Phillips. You'll get replacement level play, probably from Harrison Phillips. But Starla Tulele, as, as weird as it sounds, reasonable might just be a significant step up. Now, that's important to understand that. Number one, don't expect him to come in and be a dominant force because at no point over the course of his career has he been a dominant player. He's been a perfectly reasonable player. However, on the other hand, perfectly reasonable is quite a step up from where we were. It's an interesting way to put it. It's an interesting way to put it. And I'm, I'm hopeful that he's able to find his form quickly and, at a minimum, it shores up the the groupings up front. Uh, but I just it, it feels like I, just kind of reading the pulse of Bills Mafia right now. Whether that was all of the energy for trading for one technique at the deadline, or you know, I I can't see I can't even get on my timeline right now on Twitter without seeing Bills fans ooing and on about you know Tyler Shelvin, this big defensive tackle from LSU. And so you know, I I, I think it's interesting to kind of gain that perspective on what we can expect in terms of impact of getting quality play or at least reasonable play from a one uh, a technique. Bruce, as we kind of close the chapter here on the defensive tackles, Vernon Butler, is he part of your plans for 2021? And maybe could you could you lump in Quentin Jefferson into that discussion? Because both of them have reasonable outs in their contracts that could create some cap space. Jefferson, yes. Butler, no. Butler, to me, is the easiest cut candidate on the entire roster. The trade-off, the value proposition of being able to get $8.3 million in savings, $1 million in dead cap, for a player that I wasn't really interested in the Bills signing when they signed him. The B word was being thrown around quite a bit in Carolina before last year, and all of a sudden, Vernon Butler had a Jordan Phillips-like sort of scenario where an inordinate amount of his pressures were able to be converted to sacks and he got six sacks. And that was, mind you, playing a lot of five tech as a three, four in a lot of looks that Carolina started to throw in 2019. And so when you have scenarios like that pop up, you think, okay, his best season was both a statistical outlier and happened at a position he's not going to be playing in Buffalo. Remind me again, why the bills are signing him. Like, what's the scenario? Obviously, the familiarity is there, but do the Bills really still think, like, does Sean McDermott really still think that there's something there in Vernon Butler? And spoiler alert, there, there wasn't anything there for Vernon Butler. So he ended up coming here and being, you know, okay, you know, he was, he was all right. I, I don't think he was a, a super, super effective player this year. And because of that, I think he's one of the easiest cut candidates on the entire roster. $8.3 million in savings, $1 million in dead cap. Quentin Jefferson has a little bit of a twinge of Ed Oliver to me. And what I mean by that is I'd really like to see Quentin Jefferson is a three-tech and a defensive end. I don't want to see Quentin Jefferson at one-tech basically ever. And unfortunately, him and Ed Oliver had a kind of platoon there because that was the way that, number one, they could get their best pass rush. And number two, you didn't really have an effective one-tech. 
And I think that when I saw Quentin Jefferson in Seattle, the thing that gave me the ability to be optimistic about him was the inside-outside flex that he gave you. You could make an argument in 2019 that Quentin Jefferson was the most effective pass rusher that the Seattle Seahawks had. And that was a team that at the time had Jadavian Clowney. And I understand Jadavian Clowney is much more name than he is anything else at this stage in his career. However, Quentin Jefferson was a good player playing that role, that inside-outside flex role. And we often talk about, okay, if we don't cut Mario Addison, but Trent Murphy walks away, who is that fourth defensive end? I think the answer is Quentin Jefferson. If you don't draft someone, I think Quentin Jefferson can be your fourth defensive end and rotate there and also platoon with Ed Oliver at three tech. And I think that kind of frees up a role for him. So I would still like to see Quentin Jefferson here. But for me, Vernon Butler is a, is a pretty easy cut candidate. Need to tell you guys about Built Bar. This is the best tasting protein bar on the planet. They have 18 amazing flavors. Some of my favorites are the cherry cookies and cream. I can't get enough of the lemon almond cheesecake. They're all delicious and they're all covered in 100% chocolate. They're soft and easy to chew. It's like eating a candy bar, but they're good for you. Built Bars are great for anyone who is health conscious. Whether you want to lose weight, maintain weight, or just indulge in a delicious treat, you got to try Built Bars. They're low calorie, low sugar, high protein, high fiber, and perfect for anyone on the keto diet. I've got a deal for you. Go to BuiltBar.com and use promo code LOCKEDON and you'll get 20% off your next order. Again, promo code LOCKEDON for 20% off at BuiltBar.com. All right, Bruce, linebacker time. And I have a lot of questions about this position group. Let's start with Tremaine Edmonds. Uh, I feel like I have been maybe the highest on Tremaine Edmonds, a very highly graded player for me coming out of Virginia Tech. Uh, I feel like I've been an apologist for him. I really liked what I saw in 2019. This year, I don't think that he took a step. Part of that's due to the injuries. Part of that's due to you know the defensive line in front of him not necessarily uh, being up to par. But as you look at the, the three-year sample size that we have for Tremaine Edmonds, how would you assess his play to this point and what are your expectations for him in 2021? Tremaine Edmonds plateaued as far as level of play at a level where I personally wouldn't be comfortable re-signing him. That's the spot we're at. And one of the things we talked about in on my podcast not too long ago was we talked about some of my roster building philosophies. And one of them is don't re-sign okay players. And right now, I think Tremaine Edmonds is a, is a perfectly okay player. He has flashes and he has moments where I don't think I really want to re-sign him to a market setting linebacker Mike deal. And I understand that there are reasons for that, right? The injury, three different linebackers playing next to him, not having the people in front of him. And that's a part of it. So those things are reasons. There are certainly reasons why those things have happened as far as the plateauing of his play. However, you have a significant investment in Tremaine Edmonds. And at this point, the only reason you pick up his fifth-year option is just because of how young he is and because you want to see more development from a very raw, talented, athletic player who I've already established over the course of these conversations. You have a tendency to give more time to players with those tools because you and I have talked about this before. Your upside is a collection of your traits. And Tremaine Edmonds has a lot of traits. 
And when you have that and you have that upside, you have a tendency to be more patient with those people. And so I expect them to pick up his fifth-year option. But I wouldn't feel comfortable extending Tremaine Edmonds right now. And I think it's weird that we're potentially looking at Matt Milano walking out the door and not re-signing Tremaine Edmonds this year when a year and a half ago we thought this was going to be the linebackers for the Bills for the next decade. But it didn't work out that way. So for me, Tremaine Edmonds, we understand that there are reasons for his play. And the reasons are why you extend the fifth-year option. Those reasons are the reasons why you give him another crack at it. However, I personally wouldn't feel comfortable extending him at this point. Yeah, I think that's a totally reasonable response. And I, I think the Bills should pick up that fifth-year option. And I think they need to see sustained high-level play for two years before you think about giving him $15, $16 million a year on a long-term extension. And yeah, the dynamics of this conversation have really shifted from you know thinking that the Bills had their Keekly and Davis to do they have either one of them? And part of that is because Matt Milano's contract is up. And Bruce, whether it was Brandon Bean extending Dawkins and White and kind of saying a lot in my mind about uh, his priorities and then his comments in the postseason uh, press conference where he basically said, look, Milano has earned the right and he wants to see what his free agent market bears and he needs to focus on being able to play you know, a full season and that uh, there's going to be tough decisions ahead. I got I'm, I, the, the messaging and the signals tell me that Milano's gone. So I'd like to see if you have a different perspective on what you think the Bills will do with Milano. And on the flip side of that, if if he is gone, what's the plan? What do you what do you think they should do here to get that running mate alongside Tremaine Edmonds? I do think Matt Milano's gone. I think when the first thing that someone brings up in the organization when talking about Matt Milano is he needs to stay healthy for six games, 16 games, I think that's a bad sign. And then you couch that with he's earned the right to see what his market bears, which we've talked about is the same thing they said about Jordan Phillips. That feels to me like he's gone. That feels a lot to me like he's gone. If the first thing you're doing is giving messaging to your fans as to why you're not going to re-sign him, that is them getting out ahead of the narrative. Well, you know, he's got to stay healthy for 16 games. If that's the first thing out of your mouth, you're not saying that to him. He already knows that. You've already had your exit interviews with him. You're saying that to the fans. That's a message to us as to, hey, just so you know, if we don't re-sign him, this is why. And so I do think Matt Milano is gone. In fact, at this point, I'm reaching the point where I'd be surprised that he was back. But as far as... Tremaine Edmonds' running mate. One of the things that I thought was really interesting when the Bills signed AJ Klein last year is that it's really a, you're really locked in for the first two years of AJ Klein. And it kind of smelled to me weird at the time because I said, what, guys, three years, 18 million, you know, six million average annual value for a player who's going to play 10 to 15 snaps a game, familiarity, special teams. It feels like an overpayment, right? On the, and you got Tyler Matikavich, who's making more money than you would think a special teamer. You know, why are they overpaying at linebacker all of a sudden for familiarity? Do you remember when the Bills signed TJ Yeldon to a two-year deal and we thought, why two years? That's weird. And then we ended up realizing that the reason why they were kind of hedging against that is because they kind of knew that they were going to need him the next year and wanted to have a veteran in that room 
in the event that they weren't able to secure Zach Moss or a player like that in the draft, that they could have a vet behind Devin Singletary. And when you have things like that happen, you think, okay, I get it now. I do kind of wonder if the AJ Klein signing was a hedge against Matt Milano. It's somebody who is familiar with the system and the bills have shown that they will take familiarity over a lot of other traits that I would prefer that they not. When they sign players like Vernon Butler, when they sign players like Mario Addison, when they sign players like AJ Klein, they've proven that familiarity with their system, people they know, which we know is extremely common in the NFL. People like to coach people that they know, and they like to coach with people they know. Coaches hire coaches that they know, and coaches bring in players that they know. And things like that matter to them. And I do wonder if the A.J. Klein contract that just so happens to be pretty much locked in for two years was a hedge against Matt Milano. I would not be shocked at all if the Bills' starting linebackers in 2021 were Tremaine Edmonds and A.J. Klein. And I'm not going to be thrilled about that as far as a linebacker core, but it seems to me, based on I mean, $6 million is a little bit much for a 10-snap-a-game defender. And so maybe they thought, hey, we don't know if we're going to resign Matt Milano. We want to make sure we have somebody in the room who we're comfortable taking snaps, who can be someone who we can potentially develop a rookie behind. And it might be Tremaine Evans and A.J. Klein. Wow. That's another layer to it that I haven't considered. You know, I was like, all right, I see where you're going with this. And then you brought in that that. The, the structure of the deal, which I, I rambled about on the, uh, the Monday podcast. I'm like, yeah, they really can't get out of this thing. And that's just kind of another signal here that uh, you have uncovered here for us. And I mean, I, I think maybe Tyrell Dotson's a sleeper in this conversation in terms of, you know, not necessarily being the running mate, but maybe getting some time in a platoon role with, uh, AJ Klein because Dotson's been around for two years as a UDFA and they said goodbye to Vashawn Joseph and you know, they stuck with Dotson through injuries and through uh, suspension you know as a, as a UDFA so I continue to think that there's maybe something there that they like in Dotson Bruce let's talk cornerbacks your your favorite position we already know you would upgrade CB2 right <laughs> so my question <laughs> for you is how do you see the Bills attacking CB2 this offseason? I know Josh Norman's a free agent. Dane Jackson's in the building. I think Levi Wallace is a, is a restricted free agent. Uh, and so after you tell us the, the way that you think that they're going to attack it, you know what ideas, uh, if Brandon Bean were listening to this podcast, what ideas do you think he should subscribe to? I do think that until Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott show me otherwise, I am going to assume they're going to have a get-by guy on the opposite side of Tredavious White. I am going to assume that that's going to be the case because the overwhelming majority of the data indicates to me that that's going to be the case. You did an entire podcast about this last summer where you went through all of the cornerback pairings that Sean McDermott has had as part of his defense. And historically, it's been a good player and a get-by guy. And until they show me otherwise, I'm going to assume that that's going to be the case. I can see a low-level free agent signing to come in and either Levi Wallace gets a tender or they sign him to a deal that's maybe less than the tender to extend it out for two years. And then you have Dane Jackson, someone like Dre Kirkpatrick, someone like Ross Cockrell, 
someone who's a low, low level veteran on a one year deal who can come into a system that is a little bit more cornerback friendly and be able to try to kind of revive their career, a la Kevin Johnson, a la Josh Norman. And I do anticipate that's the type of thing you'll see again from this regime. Now, that's not what I would do. Now, I'm going to be yelling into the ether about upgrading the athleticism at CB2 spot probably until I'm dead. That's just the way it's going to go. Every offseason, it's going to be a running joke. I'm going to say, hey, guys, let's get a more athletic CB2. And every offseason, they'll wait until the seventh round, and they'll pick someone who is really aggressive and tackles well. <laughs> and that's what's going to happen. So if it were me, I think that you should attack it with an athlete on day two. You know, someone like Tyson, Cam Tyson Campbell from Georgia, even if you wanted to mix it up a little bit and go like Israel Mukwamu. Like, let's, let's mix it up a little bit. I understand that he's really high cut. I understand that he's a little bit more versatile of a piece, but I think you could actually get kind of two in one here. You could get that versatile tight end eraser that you're always, people keep talking about Hamza Nasser Aldean, and I get that, right? And I think it's a great piece, but imagine if you could get two in one. If you could get someone who could platoon at CB2 with Dane Jackson and Levi Wallace, and you could kick him inside to cover tight ends and still have a perfectly reasonable cornerback to who you're happy with in Levi Wallace. So I would really like to do that. Having a versatile defender who's not just a safety linebacker combo, but also someone who could play outside, but then kick inside to cover tight ends. That would be a big deal for me too. So I don't think that you go into this off season with the idea that you're going to cover Tyree Hill. I think that's a mistake. I think going in there going, you know, we need a 4-3 guy at corner to cover Tyreek Hill. I don't think that's something you do. There are humans on the planet who run track who are not as fast as Tyreek Hill. I think you go in saying, goodness gracious, what can we do to make sure that the middle of the field isn't as susceptible as it used to be, and then we can use coverage schemes to try and help out on faster receivers. So that's what I would do. I fully anticipate they'll do none of that. I'll throw a couple more names out there in terms of those hybrid, uh, I guess, outside corner, but you can play them around the formation and play matchups. Uh, both the Syracuse players, uh, Ifayatu Melifonwu and Trill Williams, I like both of their size and athleticism profiles and, and their ability to you know, pattern match from a variety of alignments. So there's two more names to add to the, uh, the list of possibilities there for that uh, position list type. Uh, player that the Bills could use to make their scheme more dynamic. Added bonus, Jake Fromm is very familiar with Mukwamu. He threw uh -huh. th th three picks to him in 2019. <laughs> so uh, if Jake Fromm sees Mukwamu walk in the building, he'd be like, oh no, he's going to have a uh, flashback and nightmares. And, you know, that's always it's always fun, you know, to have your, uh, your quarantine quarterback just see his nightmares walk in the building. So, you know, I'm sure they are very acquainted with each other. Bruce, Jake from Slander is always welcome on this podcast, and so is Rex Ryan uh, Slander. So way to, way to cater to, uh, to the host here. I appreciate that. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Football might be over, but the NBA, college basketball, and NHL seasons are in full swing, and betonline.ag even covers awards, TV shows, and reality TV. They have real-time updated odds and props on almost anything you can imagine. And betonline.ag has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. It is the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. 
head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive a 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Make sure you use our promo code locked on. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. Bruce, I've had you on this podcast before. You've talked a lot today. For anyone who is not familiar with your work, where can they find you? And uh, tell us about the Bruce exclusive, the podcast that uh, you host over on the Buffalo Rumblings feed. Also, guys, we got more to talk to talk about here on this Bills defense, but I, I want to make sure we uh, give Bruce that chance to uh, talk about what he's got going on. I appreciate that, Joe. Thanks so much. And thanks for having me. Uh, my, my show, the Bruce exclusive is on the Buffalo Rumblings podcast channel. You can find it. It drops every Thursday and Friday, and you can catch it anywhere you're currently listening to this particular podcast. And one of the things we've been working on this offseason is we've been working on a where do we go from here sort of scenario. And I understand that's part of a normal recap, but we're going to talk about quarterbacks here in the next week or so. And by the time you're listening to this, we would have already talked about a little bit about that. And we're going to use a proprietary quarterback composite metric that I kind of worked on this year and that we call it the QB stew. And we're going to talk about Josh Allen and where he is in this pantheon of NFL quarterbacks that are, it's a really weird offseason for NFL quarterbacks to be bouncing around. And there's a strange stability at one bill's drive when it comes to the quarterback position and evaluating just how good Josh Allen's been. And so we're going to have a little bit of fun with that. I think that it's important, especially when you come off a loss in the AFC championship that really kind of stung a little bit. I think it's important to make sure that we take a moment and look back and go, you know, this, this is a really good season for the bills. And it wasn't just good because it was good because of, you know, they got to the AFC championship that by itself isn't what makes it good. What makes it good is that the reason why they got to the AFC championship is because they had a level of quarterback play that they never had as far as the statistics go. And so that gives you not just good now, it gives you hope for the future. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that in the upcoming weeks as far as the podcast goes. We've got some fun draft stuff and free agency stuff. And then we've got, um, we got some kookiness planned for the, the Bruce exclusive. I'm, I, you know, I'm not going not gonna to spoil anything, but we've got some kookiness lined up that I'm, I'm really excited to get to hopefully at the end of the summer. Priority listening to me every Thursday and Friday, and I usually yell at Bruce in the Twitter DMs while I'm listening. So it's, uh, it's always a good experience for me listening to the, the Bruce exclusive. Don't miss it. Make sure you are subscribed to that. Follow Bruce on Twitter at the Bruce exclusive and Instagram. Uh, warning on the Instagram page, it's it's food and dogs and honestly i i don't really need anything else from social media so uh check them out in both places fun fact on the um on the quarterback carousel that you mentioned that's going to happen across the nfl um i did a a podcast the draft dudes podcast the other podcast that i do every day on our monday podcast this week we predicted each team's primary starting quarterback for the coming season I had 14 teams with a different quarterback this year. I mean, it's crazy, man. It's kind of fun to observe this. Like you see the coaching carousel and, and the quarterback carousel spin. It's kind of nice just watching it and not being part of it. Yeah. I, I, I'm kind of sick of getting seasick on the ups and downs <laughs> of the roller coaster. So somebody else is more than welcome to uh, look nauseous at the picture they take at the end of the year. Bruce, let's talk safeties. Um, I think the Bills have an elite pair of safeties and safeties in Jordan Poyer and Micah Hyde. 
They're do-everything guys. They're interchangeable. They're special players. It's a special tandem. They're both north of 30 now, and Micah Hyde's contract is up after 2021. Jordan Poyer, actually, his his two-year extension starts now, so he's at least wrapped up for the next two seasons. How long do you think the Bills can get this outstanding play from these two guys? Um, you know, we're four years into this. I mean, it's crazy to think, but you know, how much longer can we enjoy Poyer and Hyde performing at a high level? I had a coach one time tell me that the reason why you're good is almost more important than being good. And he said this to me. He said, Bruce, he didn't call me Bruce, but he said that if it's between the ears, you'll last more years. That's what he told me. Mm. If the reason why you're good sits between your ears, you'll last more years. And we talked about this a little bit when it came to pass rushers and being able to be nuanced with your rush and have hand usage and leverage and things like that will allow you to extend your career. One of the reasons why you see elite athletic corners who occasionally can make the transition to safety later in their careers and extend their careers by multiple years is because they have it between the ears. And Micah Hyde and Jordan Poyer are those players. Their interchangeability helps because that means you can have them be successful in more things. If you only do a couple of things well, and those couple of things that you do do well require a level of athleticism that starts to fade, then you're going to find yourself without a role sooner rather than later. I think Micah Hyde and Jordan Boyer, if they were to extend Micah Hyde, I think they can continue to be successful for multiple more years. And while we're at it, you know, let's add some depth behind them from a development standpoint. But I don't look at the two of them as players who I think are going to drop off the cliff anytime soon. Bruce, Micah Hyde gave up 11 completions for 96 yards this year. I, I mean, he's good at football. Holy smokes. I mean, and you, you brought this up preseason when you were ranking, I think it was the, the 20 best Buffalo bills. I think a Pat Moran's podcast. I, I think you had him really high on your list and you talked about how the bills secondary in totality is speed deficient, but the average depth of target against the bills this year was 6.9 yards, the lowest in the NFL. I call that the Micah Hyde stat. They don't give up stuff down the field, and teams don't even try it. Micah Hyde is a woefully underrated player, and it's really sad. And one of the reasons why it's sad is because he was woefully underrated in Green Bay yeah. and used as kind of a gadget defensive player, which is the reason why when he came to Buffalo and signed as a true safety, he got a chance to play. And now again he finds himself yeah. underrated even though he's a very good player. And Micah Hyde is the eraser when it comes to the deep balls. He's the reason why you can have players like Levi Wallace as an undrafted free agent with markedly lower athleticism than would be ideal at the situation, at the position. You can have them be starters for multiple years on an elite defense. The reason you can pull that stuff off is because of players like Micah Hyde. And I didn't look at him in 2020 and think, Man, you know, he's slowing down because Micah Hyde's game has always been about being one step ahead of you. And you don't have to run at the safety position. You don't have to run a 4-4 if you're one step ahead. If you're one step ahead, you'd be amazed how much one step is. When you watch the combine and you watch these players who are overlapped with each other when they're running the 40-yard dash, 
it's amazing how much one step represents in the 40-yard dash. Now, just imagine if your instincts get you one step. That's the thing that makes a 4-6 guy a 4-4 guy. Like that's, and that's the type of thing that Micah Hyde's got going on. And so as long as he doesn't start to degrade to a four, nine guy, right. He can (laughs) still stay up. And that's the type of thing that I don't think people realize that false steps and being there early and being there late, that stuff has a drastic impact on positioning that can or cannot be recovered with speed, but can help you make up for things like that specifically at the safety position. Now I'm not saying I don't want good athletes. I'm not saying you can throw Jaquan Johnson back there and everything will be fine because he does have good instincts, but it's not the same as Micah Hyde because Micah Hyde's not a bad athlete. He's a perfectly good athlete, but you can make things happen a step faster if you're better between the ears and he is better between the ears. Dre Harris, a colleague of mine at the draft network played college ball at Cal was on the 49ers for a little bit and uh, NFL scout for seven years. He has a saying, uh, whenever we talk safeties, he says, dumb safeties get you beat. And uh, I think that's a good way to kind of tie a ribbon on our discussion about this really great pair of safeties in in Micah Hyde and Jordan Poyer. As we finish up our discussion on safeties, though, uh, and we it sounds like you feel good about these guys being able to perform at a high level for at least a few more years, and obviously that would require the Bills to extend Micah Hyde. As you start to think about the players behind them and how important these players have been to the defense and starting to groom, you know, maybe some successors, do you think Jaquan Johnson has the ceiling of an NFL starter? And should the Bills start to think about, you know, mid-round draft picks on on safeties that they can develop into answers down the line? I do not think Jaquan Johnson has the ceiling of an NFL starter. And this is coming from a guy who is an unabashed Jaquan Johnson fan. I was a fan when they drafted him. His film is so much fun to watch, but there comes a point at which even instincts can't make up for a certain deficiency as far as athleticism go. And Jaquan Johnson has the, he has the trifecta of bad athletic traits that you don't want to see, right? He's short, he's not long and he's slow relative to the position. And so your instincts can be great, but you can't really make up for it if you're that deficient from an athleticism standpoint. I do think Jaquan Johnson could be a perfectly reasonable backup safety, and I think he'd be a great teams player. And I think that if that's your investment for a six-round pick and you get four years of reasonable production out of him in those roles as a backup safety and a special teamer before he moves on his way, that's a perfectly good use of a six-round pick. If you get four years of quality teams play and backup safety out of a six-round pick, that's good, and you should be okay with that. It doesn't have to be something more, and we can't always project and assume that that development to NFL starter level, not everyone's going to be cut out for that. I'll tell you who might be cut out for that, Richie Grant. Give me Richie Grant. You just talked about interchangeability of the safeties being so important. Richie Grant was asked to do a lot of different things at UCF, and you can have him in a three safety grouping, which is becoming more and more popular in the NFL. And it's something the bills can do to help combat the middle of the field and tight ends. And he could be your projected Micah Hyde replacement. So that's the type of player that I think is reasonable. You have to decide now if you're going to re-sign Micah Hyde. And if you're not, then potentially you need to start grooming his replacement. And that's a player that I'm a big fan of. 
Yeah, man, we got we got a lot of draft talk to do, you and I, because uh, you're Richie Grant. You're bringing names like that to the table. So w- w- those are coming, folks. I'm going to bug uh, Bruce for, for some of those conversations. Maybe he will me as well. But, uh, uh, man, you got the, the itch is there, brother. I, I want to talk about these prospects with you. But uh, today we're talking Bill's defense, and, and I've, I've gotten to everything I wanted to ask you. So as we finish this discussion and you think about the Bill's defense that we watched in 2020 and you, you're reminded of the – you know, top tier units of 2018 and 2019, and you consider 2021 and where this team wants to go and the questions that exist on defense, as well as the answers that exist on defense. I just want to ask you a very simple question, Bruce. How do you feel? I feel okay. And the reason I feel okay is I think that the Bills defense has reached a peak in the last couple of years that they never reached in Carolina when they were under Sean McDermott that defense. I mean, if you look at Sean McDermott's defenses in Carolina, as far as yards, 11th, 8th, 12th, 12th, 5th, 25th. They never reached the peak that were reached in 18 and 19 by the Buffalo Bills defense here. They've already reached a peak they never reached before. So should we be expecting maybe a regression to the mean? And maybe this defense ends up settling in as an eight to 12 sort of unit, that would be an improvement you know, from where we saw the Bills defense sort of at their lows in 2020. But I feel okay. And one of the reasons that I feel okay, it's really important that I share this. One of the reasons I feel okay is I don't think this has to be a team that's led by its defense anymore. And that is important because although we've spent the entire pod talking about defense, This team no longer needs to be led by this unit because that's the level of play they've gotten from their offense. And when you look at teams that are around the league and consistently have success, most of the time they're offensively driven teams, and that's because they have their quarterback position kind of straightened out. So I can simultaneously think that there's a possibility the Bills aren't going to recapture 18 and 19. And also – look and say, okay, if they didn't do that, I would still be probably okay. And so the answer is, I feel okay. And if I think that this defense can be reasonable, can be solid in 2021, it depends largely on three players that we've already discussed. Ed Oliver, AJ Epinesa, and Tremaine Edmonds. As those three players go, so will the Beals' defense in 2021 and moving forward. If there's any possibility to recapture elite status, I don't think you're going to get a free agent walking in those doors who's going to do this. I don't think you're going to get a draft pick who's going to walk in those doors who's going to do it. It's going to be the growth of those three players who were previously drafted high to reach their potential so the Bills' defense can reach its. Bruce? Thank you so much for delivering an outstanding podcast uh, appearance like you always do. And uh, the preparation that you put in is always obvious. And, uh, man, I really, really appreciate your time here uh, delivering the goods for the listeners of Locked On Bills. Thanks so much for having me, Joe. I really appreciate it, man. All right, folks, that'll do it for us today here on the podcast. That'll do it for us this week here on the podcast. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. As we uh, it's weekend number two with, with no football, so uh, like I said last time, throw some throw some steaks on the grill, enjoy your family, and uh, think about watching uh, Josh Allen play football next September. As always, I kindly ask that you rate, review, share, subscribe 
to this podcast. And I look forward to catching up with you again on Monday.